0: Hello and welcome to Between the Lines, taking you behind the local news, food, theaters, and more in Rhode Island. Today Motif's own Mike Ryan sits down with Michael Billow, who today will discuss an article he recently wrote regarding fentanyl. We would like to thank our sponsors R1 Indoor Karting, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and Foolproof Brewing.
1: This is Mike Ryan with Motifs Between the Lines, podcast exploring our latest issue, the cannabis issue, which is on newsstands and wherever else we leave Motif, right now. We want to thank our sponsors, R1 Indoor Karting, Trinity Beer Garden, and Foolproof Brewing. We're here today with Mike Billow, who is going to talk a little bit about his article in the cannabis issue regarding fentanyl. And
0: the title, Mike, is? My Friend Killed by the Government, Stop the Carnage. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of this article. Well, first, I've been covering cannabis for the magazine for many years. I, I go back to probably 2014, 2015 when I started writing about mm-hmm. it and doing video recordings for events and forums and so on. Yep. So it's an area of substantial interest and always has been. And, of course, the opioid crisis has been uh, gaining in um, importance um, and severity. Yep. And, you know, I, I'm not going to go into details to what that is right now because I assume if people... At least have heard of it. Some months ago, a personal friend of mine, not a close friend, but somebody I I, I see frequently interacted with on social media, um, often saw in person at events, because he was part of the literary community, you know, people with horror fans A friend and, to many of us, yeah. A uh, friend to you too, I know. Um, and he died um, very unexpectedly, and he was not a, a He was not a substance abuser in the sense that he had an addiction to prescription opioids like OxyContin or street opioids like heroin. He just Mm -hmm. didn't do that stuff. But like many people, he was at some friends and recreational recreational cannabis. And cannabis is used recreationally by a very large percentage of people. Mm -hmm. In my article, I talk about what the federal government's numbers are But it's, you know, in a certain age range, 18 to 35, my friend was just, I think, a bit older than 35. But in that 18 to 35 range, it's not unusual for maybe almost 40% of the people surveyed to say, well, I did use cannabis recreationally within the last month. And that's fairly frequent use. Mm -hmm. And at this point, there are, within that age range, more cannabis users on a monthly basis than... In fact, even tobacco users now. Tobacco has really lost its attraction. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, people are just moving away from that. And what age group are you talking about? Well, the government's particular number there is 18 to 35. And, you know, they they do publish statistics on other age groups, but that happened to be the one I focused on. Mm -hmm. And in the article, there's a link to the the original government data because there is a a survey that's performed every year.
1: So back to this story. (laughs) What
0: happened? So my friend... uh, was offered some cannabis in a social situation accepted it and unknown to him he uh, he smoked cannabis laced with fentanyl and fentanyl is a very dangerous opioid it's far more potent by weight and volume than heroin and it's a synthetic opioid so yep. it can be easily created it doesn't have to be grown and you can you can get it by the jar from illicit sources in Asia, okay. and it's often used here in the United States as a power boost for illegal street opioids. So, and it's a big part of the current opioid crisis, right? And again, the, the, the opioid crisis is a very complex subject, but right. the basic story is that.
1: Well, but let's let's stick to what happened in this in this okay. case. What does laced with fentanyl? mean
0: um it means it means that somebody for unknown reasons decided to um expose the the cannabis which was probably in in leaf or or plant form Mm -hmm. to this synthetic chemical fentanyl uh, either by soaking it or otherwise mixing it and somebody who's familiar with cannabis would not necessarily be able to detect that it was laced with fentanyl and therefore, quite deadly.
1: If it's laced, that to me implies a, a small dose. But this was enough to.
0: No, it, it's it's almost certainly a very small dose because fentanyl is something that is, as I said, extremely powerful, mm-hmm. more so than even heroin by weight and volume. So, extremely tiny trace amounts of fentanyl um, can be very deadly. And he was passing a joint,
1: or or some scenario like that. I don't so
0: know the details, of course, but something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it might have been a pipe, I don't know, but it was some social situation in mm-hmm. which people were, were consuming cannabis.
1: So other people were exposed to this.
0: That's my understanding. I don't know how many people were there, right. but exactly how many people partook of cannabis, I don't know. I, I, my understanding is that no one else died from it, but they may have been sickened from it. I, again, don't know. Okay. It may have been a very small group.
1: Our, our mutual acquaintance in this case definitely had a very significant reaction. Yes, it was fatal.
0: Yes. And in fact, the the way opioids work is that people who are habitual users develop a a tolerance for it. So somebody who has no tolerance and is not an habitual user would be much more susceptible to the the severe effects, like Mm -hmm. my friend.
1: There are a number of paths to go down in this conversation, but first let's talk a little bit about anyone who might have concerns about a similar similar circumstances. Are th- is there anything one can do?
0: Sure. And one of those things is you can get fentanyl test kits, mm-hmm. which are distributed for free. We've had How? the we've had the Project Hope team, mm-hmm. which uh, distributes not only uh, uh, fentanyl test kits for people who are concerned that they may encounter drugs laced with fentanyl or any substances laced with fentanyl, mm-hmm. but they also distribute naloxone, which is the generic name for Narcan. Uh, Narcan is an antidote. So if somebody takes enough opioids to cause a severe adverse reaction, something that could, for example, stop their heart, naloxone is capable of bringing them out of that and allowing enough time to call for help and medical assistance.
1: So we'll put a link wherever this podcast appears, but also for people who are just listening. How do they avail themselves of those
0: opportunities? There are a number of ways. Almost any pharmacy will will give you a, a, a box or a dose of Narcan. And it's a little box. It's about two inches by three inches by, I don't know, two inches. So it can be carried almost anywhere in your car, in your, in your briefcase, whatever, in your purse. And Rhode Island has a standing order for prescriptions. So if you go into uh, almost any pharmacy and say, I would like a box of Narcan so I could carry it with me, they will give it to you. You may have to fill out a little bit of paperwork, not a lot, basically, uh, you know, who you are, your zip code, things like that. Mm-hmm. Make sure you're of age. I think that's a requirement too. But. Um, it's by you, no
1: means an endorsement to do anything that would require you to use the Narcan,
0: but it is. No, available. but of course, Narcan <laughs> is the kind of thing you carry for other people. I mean, if you're the one totally incapacitated at the point where you need Narcan, you're not administering it to yourself. Right. Narcan is something that is of great benefit to carry if you are likely to come into contact with somebody who has overdosed. So police officers carry Narcan. Firefighters carry Narcan. Doctors and nurses carry Narcan. Um, and teachers often carry Narcan, or at least have it immediately accessible to them. So almost anyone who is in any kind of a role where they might encounter some other person who is in an overdose condition and needs it, Probably would benefit from carrying it. It's one of those things, like a fire extinguisher. You're better off having it than when you need it if you are if you, not having it. So if I go into CVS
1: tomorrow and, and ask them, ask the pharmacist for an ARCAN, they'll.
0: That's give the it way to it's me. supposed to work. That's yes. the way it's
1: supposed to work. Okay, great. And if they give me a hard time, I'll I'll point them at you.
0: <laughs> I'll tell them to call you. If you have if no, you have I'm trouble kidding. getting it, there are a number yeah. of resources. I mean, the State Department of Health certainly will point you to the, the correct path. Mm-hmm. Um, Project Hope is um, an organization that Motif is working with. Mm-hmm. We've invited them to a lot of our events. They came to our tattoo awards a few weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, they're
1: super friendly, really great people. Very approachable.
0: Right, and um, you know they were distributing a box of Narcan, the, the, anti- the antidote for overdose, and they were also distributing fentanyl test kits so people could test their own substances and determine whether or not they're going to kill them. And um, they went through, I think, almost two cases of Narcan giving them out to people at uh, our tattoo awards. awards. And there's a f- an expectation that we'll be hosting the same group and they're very eager to come back for our other big events like the music awards and so on.
1: Shameless plug, our music awards are happening on July 18th at FET. You can get some there, but we don't recommend you wait that long, that's a few months. There's no need to wait that long. Why would anyone, from the, from the dealer's perspective, what's the point of lacing something like a joint with fentanyl?
0: I don't know. The, the, I mean, that's a real mystery. Why would you lace cannabis with fentanyl? I, I can't imagine. There are cases of it, and I talk about that in the article. It's happened in Connecticut a few times. There are documented cases there.
1: Does it make it more addictive? Are they more likely to come back for
0: I don't know. Okay. I mean, it, there's an obvious reason why they lace heroin with fentanyl, because it makes the heroin more potent, and they need less heroin, which is a it's naturally occurring result. substance. It's harder to get than fentanyl, believe it or not. But why somebody would lace cannabis with fentanyl? I don't know. It could be a mistake. Mm-hmm. It could be that they're out to kill you. It could be that they're out to incapacitate you and rob you. I don't know. Okay. So it's got a, a,
1: a little roofy like aspect to it. Po- Something naturally. like that.
0: Okay. But it, it, it's a complete mystery. And I mean, part of the problem is I did ask the uh, the Rhode Island State Health Department uh, whether the State Health Laboratory had detected any cases of people incapacitated or injured by cannabis laced with fentanyl, and they said no. But you know, I know Clearly at least. There's at least one. Okay. I know at least one person who died from this, and he died in the hospital.
1: It takes a while for the stats to reach the. Aren't stats compiled like for the previous year, that sort of thing?
0: No, something like that would get reported pretty pretty rapidly through the mm-hmm. system. I okay. mean, it's it's such an unusual situation. And I did specifically ask the state health department whether they had any cases of this, and they said right. not aware of any.
1: Well, their form may just not have a checkbox for it either. That's. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, somebody dies from any kind of unnatural causes. Mm -hmm. There is usually some investigation. The police will get involved. The Department of Health will get involved. The medical examiner will get involved. So there is a process for that. And exactly what happened is something I'm still trying to find out. But that's a matter of filing uh, access to Public Records Act requests with the police and so Mm -hmm. on. And Eventually, I may find out, but I also may not.
1: Yeah, and they have to conclude the investigation before they really tell you much of anything. Is that correct?
0: Well, that's a little complicated. There are exceptions in the statute for the Access to Public Records Act as to what the police don't want to tell you. And certain police departments are much less friendly about that than other police departments. I mean, some years back, and you will remember this, I filed a uh, a Freedom of uh, Access Public Records Act request with the Providence Police, who are usually fairly cooperative. And the request was for the police report on some guys arrested carrying a gun down the street, which is a pretty ordinary kind of thing. And And it was reported in the Providence Journal. And the police report that came back literally blacked out everything but the names of the arrestees and the final sentence saying they'd been arrested and charged. And was it looked like a
1: spoof spy movie. Every line was redacted with a big black pen.
0: Exactly. I definitely no. remember that. And there were two <laughs> pages of that, two yeah. pages of redaction. And there's no way they could justify that.
1: A little, just a little, a quick, how do these uh, testing kits work? Are they...
0: To be completely candid, I've never actually used one of the testing kits. Yeah. I've never had cause to use one of the testing right, kits. Right. I, I haven't had things like heroin in my possession where I've needed to test anything. Mm-hmm. But there are instructions on it. It comes in a little plastic bag. It's about... Um, you know, the size of a sandwich bag. Uh-huh. And there's a, an object in it that's about the size of a tea light. So it's pretty mm-hmm. small and compact. Um, okay. And as I said, there are instructions explaining how to do it.
1: So let's get to what for me is the biggest question in this story.
0: The headline you selected. Right. And the, the reason that I, I wrote about this was mm-hmm. that, you know, after my friend died, I was very upset. You want to recap? the So the government killed my friend. Is, right. Is the, the government, the government <coughs> killed my friend is the headline. And, and I why heard, is this the governor, government's fault? Well, and, I, that, and that's really what the article is about, of course, is that we have a very long history in this country of at least 100 years of making substances illegal. And so first, we've criminalized substance abuse. And I've been saying for years – I published an article about this in I think 1985 or 1986 where I said criminalizing substance abuse is crazy. This whole war on drugs idea is crazy because substance abuse is fundamentally a medical problem. And if you're going to deal with a medical problem by criminalizing it, you're going to be as totally ineffective as you would be if you locked people up for having heart disease and cancer. I mean, you could do it, you could throw them in jail cells, but what good is that going to do? It's not going to it's not going to help their cancer, it's not going to help their heart disease. And even in in cases of behavioral disorders, like obesity I mean you could criminalize obesity you could throw people in prison for being obese but I think everybody understands why that would be a bad idea and even if it worked it's I suppose you know I, I had a client at one point who went to jail for about a year and he lost about a hundred pounds he looked better than he ever <laughs> ever looked but I don't think it was worth that you know so Criminalizing obesity is maybe worth considering. but Well, it might actually uh, work, but criminalizing heart disease and cancer would not even work. And that's my case. Criminalizing uh, substance abuse does not work because what we've come to understand is that solving medical problems with the criminal law is just crazy. It's stupid. It's ineffective. It's counterproductive. And, And as I said, we have over 100 years of experience making things illegal. And a lot of this, you know, is social justice issues. We, we made opium illegal because the Chinese people used it from Asia. We made cannabis illegal because Mexican people from Central America used it. And there have been all these, these moral panics. It's like, well, we need to stop this from coming into our country across our borders. So it, it hasn't been anything where we've made these legislative decisions to criminalize things for any rational basis. Right. We've just done it because people were afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And... We did something similar, of course, very famously with alcohol. You know, from about 1920 to 1933, yep. the United States had prohibition of alcohol.
1: And that worked great.
0: Yeah, and, and everybody knows by now what a disaster that was. I mean, it encouraged widespread lawbreaking, contempt for the law, uh, the creation of organized crime to meet that demand, to supply yep. the demand. And it's it's just been one disaster after another. And by nineteen thirty-three, nobody could really defend alcohol prohibition. And by, as I say in the article, by about 1930, you know, people were, were being medically harmed. They were suffering permanent neurological damage from booze that was made in somebody's bathtub or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, people were using ingredients with no regulation. Um, and I talk about in the article one of the things is is what became known as Jake Leg syndrome. And jake leg was a neurological condition where people consumed the alcohol that had been uh, uh, treated with Jamaican ginger root, commonly known as jake. And this caused permanent, irreversible neurological damage. So people would lose the use of their their hands and feet. And jake leg became a, a recognized thing. Tens of thousands of people suffered from this. And every it
1: was a common parlance term for that era. There were songs about it. it right. Was, you know, there were comedians joking about it. And
0: right. And and you know, today, Jake Leg is an historical curiosity, right. remembered mostly by blues music historians because there were dozens of blues songs about it. Mm-hmm. And Jake Leg was entirely a consequence of the illegality of alcohol. Today, so it made a worse health crisis
1: than legal alcohol would have. Right. By to, far.
0: Today, you can go into any liquor store, and in, if you're of age and have proper ID yep. for a very reasonable amount of money, paying a very reasonable tax, yep. you well, can I, get- I do this all the time. Sure. <laughs> a lot of people do. It's a common accepted thing. Mm-hmm. And you know people, people get alcohol from a store that is perfectly reputable. It is regulated. It is quality controlled. And most importantly, it's not going to cause you neurological damage- I mean, That's yes. One of the first things I usually ask at the liquor store. Sure, I'm sure it's right on the package. You know, yeah. I mean, people buy things that are harmful to them. It says it's you know there's there's warning labels on every bottle of beer, and you know if you're pregnant, there's a warning label. So it it's one of those problems that that does exist, and nobody denies that that alcohol is prone to abuse. There are people who have very serious problems mm-hmm. with alcohol, yeah. and the social consequences of alcohol abuse are very severe. But we have learned that, A, trying to prohibit sale and possession of alcohol is a wrong-headed, counterproductive, ineffective approach. And, B, we have also learned that the people who do have problems with alcohol need to be a, have that problem addressed in some way medically or at least sympathetically. And more openly. M- and openly and not locking them up. And sure, I mean, there are are things that people can do, 12-step programs and and so forth, that have been shown to be fairly effective. Mm -hmm. And in the case of something like opioids, there's a well-established evidence-based treatment, medically-assisted treatment, using drugs like buprenorphine. And, you know, I used to attend the governor's task force on, on the opioid crisis. And one of the things that most shocked me, and I've never understood this, is that the, the government at that time anyway made the use of buprenorphine very difficult. In other words, you can, you can prescribe OxyContin if you're a run-of-the-mill doctor. Mm-hmm. And you can prescribe things like methadone, which is a, 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 a somewhat troublesome way of treating opioid addiction mm-hmm. if you're a run-of-the-mill doctor. But if you want to prescribe buprenorphine, which evidence clearly shows is the most effective medically assisted treatment method, you, as a doctor, have to go and take a special class for which you pay a few hundred bucks and spend hours at, and then you have to pay a separate licensing fee to the government so you can be authorized to prescribe this one particular drug. Mm-hmm. And so we've thrown obstacles in the path. I mean, it's not quite as bad now, but but we've thrown obstacles in the path of oh, the most the effective known yeah. treatments.
1: Yeah. And we've taken all of the rule, all of the things that we've learned from alcohol that you just laid out and declined to apply the very same lessons to cannabis.
0: Exactly. And the reason my friend I contend was killed by the government is because he couldn't get recreational cannabis. It's not legal in Rhode Island. People buy cannabis from unknown sources or mysterious sources. And even if you buy it from somebody you trust, who are they buying it from? And who is that person buying it from? And so... Because of the illegality of cannabis, not only is it untraceable in terms of quality and purity, but it's also costly because of its artificial scarcity created by its illegality. Mm -hmm. I was at a, a forum, which I talk about in the article, at Brown University a few years ago, where Pat Oglesby, who had been uh, counsel to the, the, Ways and, the, the Ways and Means Committee, I think it is, the Tax Committee of the United States Senate, mm-hmm. and he said that cannabis is an agricultural product. He says you can grow it. It's kind of like oregano. And if it wasn't illegal, it would be priced like oregano. And yep. I think that was a very telling thing because we have created an entire black market industry that supports the purchase of something that could be priced like oregano but instead is priced hundreds of times more expensive solely because of artificial scarcity caused by its illegality. And in addition to that, even where states have – and I talk about this in the article too – even where states have legalized recreational cannabis, and many states have at this point. um, I mean this is a 10-year-long trend. Uh, Massachusetts has, Connecticut has, Rhode Island may be about to, who knows. But
1: Rhode Island's been stuck in that, that state for at least five years,
0: maybe about Well, to. I've been writing about it for about seven or eight. So yeah, Rhode, right. I, Rhode Island's, uh, I don't know what's going on with Rhode Island. I mean, I, I cover this, I talk to the people, I know all the principles. I still don't know what we're doing. I don't know why we're doing it. And there's a lot of opposition politically in Rhode Island, and, and that's a different subject. Yeah. But the point is that even where states have legalized recreational cannabis the federal government still considers it a Schedule I drug, meaning Mm -hmm. that in 1970, I think it was, the the Congress just voted to do it and said there is no medically acceptable use for cannabis, and therefore it's Schedule I. So even studying cannabis with the approval of the federal government requires enormous amounts of paperwork, and you can only use certain sources, and you have to go through a bunch of controls. And so the, the inability to even do medical studies with it has resulted in the the self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. that there's no evidence of medical effectiveness for anything because, because it's you illegal can't to gather that evidence. Right, <laughs> exactly, it's illegal <laughs> to try to gather the evidence. And yet there's vast quantities of anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. where people have benefited significantly from cannabis to treat medical problems or at least to ameliorate or palliate the symptoms of medical problems. And you know, there there are people who I think are kind of on the loony side who claim that cannabis can cure anything. There's no evidence for that, but if they're right, but for certain
1: certain ailments and illnesses, there's, right? There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. But
0: there's there's enormous evidence. I feel that there is a a, va- a, a valid palliative case for medical cannabis, and that's been true for thirty years. Right. I mean, in Rhode Island, you know, we we had a member of the General Assembly, a guy named Thomas Slater, who was diagnosed with cancer, and it proved to be terminal, but he'd been in the General Assembly for, I think, about 20 years. And so everybody knew him. He was a friend of theirs. They trusted him. And here's this guy in the General Assembly, ordinary guy, been there 20 years, effective politician, very popular with his own district, comes down with cancer, gets chemotherapy, and he says, you know, somebody recommended to me that I use medical cannabis to treat or alleviate the symptoms, the the vomiting, the nausea, and so on, that go with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way cancer chemotherapy works is it it tries to poison you just enough to not kill you, but to kill the cancer. So it's a very unpleasant experience. And that, as a result, created a great deal of understanding in the Rhode Island General Assembly for why medical cannabis is a good thing. And many states, and virtually all states really, have adopted medical cannabis and approved it and have some mechanism for using it. But defying that, the federal government still says, as a matter of law, and it's that way until Congress votes to change it, cannabis has no medical value for any purpose. And that means that people who, who deal in cannabis, even as openly and legally as they want, they, they, they run compassion centers, or they sell recreational cannabis, as they often do in Massachusetts just over the border, mm-hmm. they pay taxes, they do whatever they're legally required to do, they, and of course they test for purity and, and so on. They can't use the banking system. Right. They're prohibited and by technically law. Technically, they're
1: still breaking federal law.
0: Right, because they're breaking federal law.
1: <coughs> Which we hope will change. I mean, there are proposals to change that.
0: Well, Congress keeps keeps trying to do that. I think the House passed legislation to change that, but it's dead in the Senate. Uh, because of the filibuster rule that requires mm-hmm. 60 senators to sign on to right. anything, right.
1: but to tie this back to the point of, of your article, the loss of our friend, which is is a a great loss to anyone who knew him, in trying to help have that help society in some way, or have some higher meaning. Uh, one is on a, on the large scale, you're suggesting just just change our policies around cannabis. Right. On the small scale, we want people to be aware of the possibility of of this sort of thing. Don't how would you boil down that message
0: well on an individual basis people need to do things like have access to naloxone in case of overdose they, they don't, need don't they need take to things ha- you don't know the source of right they own. need to have test kits because you mm-hmm. can't get Drugs from legal sources, or clean sources, or pure sources, or regulated sources. So the next best thing you can do is get these test kits and say, well, at least this particular drug in front of me doesn't isn't contaminated with cannabis. Is not laced. It's not laced. I'm sorry, isn't laced. Well, I'm sorry. and immediately it's, it's fentanyl, you, can you can get a medical card.
1: Well, <laughs> all, all, most most people have access to someone who can probably get that for them.
0: Well, under the right circumstances, it's not that difficult to get a medical card. If you have a reason to have a medical card, you can get a medical card in Rhode Island, and there are statutory criteria for that. Right. And there are a number of, of facilities where uh, you can either walk in, and for about a two hundred dollar consultation fee, they will they will do the necessary paperwork. In some cases, you can do it online from some company in like California, and they'll charge you more, than about fifty bucks. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways you can do that, and Rhode Island has fairly good laws. Making available medical cannabis, but that doesn't get you any more than a card. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get you the cannabis, right. and we still have the problem of where to source cannabis. Okay. Because yes, there are compassion centers, and right now there are three in Rhode Island. But there, I understand prohi- my understanding of the regulations. They're prohibited from growing it, cultivating it. So they have to buy it from other cultivators. So they now, in turn, have to have a, a transitive trust relationship with those cultivators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hopefully they've done their due diligence and they're making sure the stuff is, is good and clean and pure. Mm-hmm. And, th- they, they they should be, and, and They are tested. And they should be testing it themselves, right. yes. yeah. But ultimately, though, you know, th- there's nothing in the law that contemplates or restricts the supply, of the compassion centers or cultivators. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, the original law did not contemplate compassion centers and cultivators like that. The original law was to make legal what people were already doing, which was either growing cannabis for their own medical use, small quantities, or having a friend of theirs with usually more experience supplies, grow it for them. And so these were always on a, a person-to-person basis. And one of the things that Rhode Island did from the very beginning with medical cannabis, which has been remarkably effective, and, and, and I think very f- farsighted, very, very prescient, was that they authorized gifts of cannabis. So, Medical card holders can get gifts of cannabis. They can't buy it. That's not legal yet from other cultivators. And often people who didn't know anything about cannabis but suddenly found, found themselves with a medical need for it. You know, nobody asked to get cancer and go into chemotherapy, for example. You know, pe- people like that and often people who had no experience of cannabis whatsoever and often people in their 70s and 80s now who had a medical need for cannabis – and had been told all their lives that this is evil stuff and gateway drug, you know, suddenly they, they need to get access to it. Mm-hmm. And organizations were able to facilitate things like gifts of cannabis to them. And so they were able to try various things and find out what worked for them or find out if it did work for them or how to do it. And people were able to teach them, well, you, you, you want to use a small quantity of this and you don't want to take too much of that and so forth. So that's the individual answer. Okay. On an indi- individual basis, people need to make sure they have Narcan with them. Make sure they 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 have test kits with them. Make mm-hmm. sure that they they try as hard as possible to assure the quality of the sub- and purity of the supply. On a societal basis, that's a whole different problem. Mm-hmm. And even but if yet another reason to get rid of the Schedule One thing, right? To
1: I mean, legalize it already, essentially,
0: right? And yeah. and I mean, ultimately, I think that the solution on a societal basis is to treat cannabis like we treat alcohol make mm-hmm. it regulated make it taxed make sure that you can get it from reputable suppliers because again 30 40 percent of the public is using it on a monthly basis yeah. and you can't enact laws that that tell 30 40 percent of the people you can't put everyone in jail well, and <laughs> well, you know, you can. And the problem with that is it turns your society into a kind of authoritarian yeah. horror show. Yeah, okay, so I'll rephrase. You don't
1: want to put everyone in jail.
0: Well, my, my argument is more than that. I'm saying that th- by keeping cannabis illegal, despite its widespread use and acceptance, it's not just some sort of a joke anymore. It's never been a joke. Right. People suffer real harm from this, like my friend who died from it, of course. But, but even people who are... are facing criminal charges for possession or growing, people who, who even have non-criminal violations, mm-hmm. people who get test drug tested at work, things like that. I mean, nobody gets fired because they tested positive on, for alcohol, right. but they get fired because they tested positive for cannabis. And, and I don't think there's any medical or scientific justification for treating them fundamentally differently. Both are possibly prone to abuse, and, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, cite, I'll cite her by name because she said this publicly, Beth Comery, who was with L- Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. LEAP. Yep. LEAP. And, you know, she was a province police officer for many years and then became an attorney. But I remember her saying that, you know, when she was a police officer, she got called to a lot of incidents where drunk people were fighting each other fueled by alcohol. But you can't remember ever being called to a, a situation where potheads were fighting each other sparked by cannabis. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of, of value in that observation. Yeah. yeah.
1: We're not really measuring them in terms of their disruption to society. But if we were, right. there'd, there'd be, we'd be making different choices. Well, there's
0: a lot of, a lot of very good scholarly uh, treatments about why cannabis ended up treated the way it is in the law. And John, John Hudak, for example, from Brookings Institution, has a book, which I believe the title is Just Marijuana A History, where he talks about that. And he talks about the, the, the social forces that drove cannabis to be prohibited by law, to be criminalized. Mm-hmm. And there's a great deal of racial animus in that. Yep. And there still is. I mean, one of the problems is, I mean, that the cops don't necessarily go out looking to arrest people for possession of cannabis. It's a minor offense, and today, it, it, it's since 2013 in Rhode Island, anyway, it's decriminalized. It's a, a mi- it's a civil violation like a traffic ticket. But the reality is that people get treated differently because of where the cops are. So if you're in South Providence, you're much more likely to encounter the police and end up having to explain to the cops why you're, you're, you're in possession of cannabis than if you're a, a Brown or RISD student on the east side mm-hmm. because the police don't hang out there and they don't expect to, to police that area so much. And there's a lot of complex reasons for that. I, I, I don't want to suggest that the police are inherently racially biased because there is more crime in the places the cops are. But it's always an open question. Is there more crime to begin with or is that just the crime you're catching because that's where the cops it's are?
1: The chicken and rag aspect to that, yeah.
0: Yeah. All
1: right. So what should, what should people take away from this article? And how, how did – actually before you answer that question, how did you feel about writing it? Was it difficult?
0: No. No. Um, It was something that happened months, the death happened months and months ago. And I kept turning over in my head repeatedly the idea of writing about it because Mm -hmm. I instantly understood, based on my extensive experience in reporting on this issue, that as far as I was concerned, my friend was killed by government policy. Mm -hmm. That yes, it's the fentanyl that killed him, but the fact that there was fentanyl in the cannabis is because government policy prevents him from getting safe access. It prevents everybody from getting safe access. He, it could have been anybody. That's mm-hmm. the point. And so, no, I, I, I wanted to write so this. You,
1: you knew you wanted to write it and you knew what you wanted to say.
0: Right. Okay. I knew I knew I wanted to write it immediately. Okay. And then I just kind of let that slide for a lot of reasons. Part is, I mean, it's a difficult subject to, to talk about anyway. Right. And I was concerned that we had many mutual acquaintances, mutual friends like you, actually. And I wasn't sure how people would interpret that. And um, before I published it, I I did read it to a number of our mutual friends. And they were very supportive and approving. And I was grateful for that, because I I didn't know what the reaction would be. It could have been anything. So, and then of course, we do an annual cannabis issue every every April. And that seemed like the ideal opportunity to publish it, finally.
1: Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Did, any final thoughts or uh, wrap-ups?
0: I don't know. I mean, I think it should make people angry. Huh? And what they do with that anger is, I would say, channel it politically. I and mean, if you really believe that cannabis should be regulated and taxed like alcohol and supplies of it should be safely available to you know any competent adult, then... I think people have an obligation even to make sure that their legislators in the General Assembly are aware of their view because Mm -hmm. there is, I mean, every year for, I think, at least 10 years, these bills have come up. Sometimes they've passed one house and not the other. Sometimes there's been some backing of it from the governor, sometimes not. But nothing has ever really passed to legalize recreational cannabis. The the stars have not aligned politically. And I think that the resistance in the General Assembly is because many members are afraid that their constituents will not understand a vote to legalize it, and that they're concerned that there will be a political backlash. And, you know, there are, there are people who have been very vocal against legalization. I mean, um, I'm sure you will remember the, uh, the chief of police in the town of Hopkinton, who testified against one of these bills at the General Assembly? Yeah. That um, he was afraid that legalization of cannabis would result in increased in dismemberments and decapitations and decapitations. Yes. And um, it was an odd argument. Yeah. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I, I talked about that in an article a few years ago, and I tracked uh-huh. down what he was what he meant. And there yeah, was a there case. There been
1: a drug dealer who had suffered that fate. Right. There was but
0: there was a guy with a medical cannabis card, and and he ended up basically dismembered and, and killed and all that. And, well, killed and dismembered. Let's get the order correct. But it turned out that th- not only was there cannabis involved, but there was a large amount of cocaine, several kilos, I believe, and there was also tens of thousands of dollars in cash. So this was a... a, a, a tenuous connection. Yes, yeah, so there's a bunch tenuous. of drug deals gone wrong. Th- th- this, this is not exactly a, a case where cannabis fueled the, uh, the crime. This was people killing each other over money. And, and so
1: even though polls keep showing that the general public is in favor of legalization, some of that our representatives aren't hearing that directly. Some of them don't believe the polls and, or aren't hearing it from their constituents. And that's a way that we could help make this situation better. That's and true. And channel our anger. Is that
0: Sure, I think people need to communicate that. But I, I, I also think there's a problem that many of the opponents of legalization are very vocal, whereas many of the, the proponents of legalization sort of just see it as an absurdity in the law. Like, well, everybody uses this stuff. Why is it illegal? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's the same problem we had in the 20s with prohibition. I mean, we we look back on that with nostalgia, and you can find books and movies <laughs> and songs where you know everybody. seemed it wasn't to, fun at the time. Yeah. Everybody seemed having a great time at these illegal speakeasies, mm-hmm. but you know the way we remember it is, is very different from what was actually happening, and you know the, there was a reason why the the there was an enormous increase and in a rise of organized crime because people were were killing each other and viciously so.
1: All right, Mike, I want to thank you for your time. Again, this is Between the Lines with Motif. I'm Mike Ryan, and this is Mike Billow. And we want to thank our sponsors, R1 Indoor Karting, Trinity Beer Garden, and Foolproof Brewing, and Grace Hill Brewing. And we want to thank the CIC for hosting our podcast. You can pick up the written version of this article wherever you can find Motif. We're in about 1,100 spots around the state. Thanks again, Mike, for your time.
0: Have a great day. And of course, we're also on motifri.com, and you can read the article there.
1: Exactly. Uh, It also bears noting we are not doctors or lawyers, so don't take medical or legal advice. We're just right about that stuff. Thank you very much. This has been Between the Lines. For more stories like these, we hope you check out the latest issue of McKeith Magazine and stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks for listening.